Thank you for listening to this teaching from Kingdom Discipleship. In Romans 9.16, the Apostle Paul declared, quote, It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. None of us could ever come to know Jesus Christ without the mercy of our Heavenly Father. Every one of us is an object of mercy. That said, what is the basis or reason of God's mercy toward us? Let's open our Bible now to Romans chapter 9 and dig into this difficult doctrine of election. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another teaching. It is a Monday afternoon here in Texas and just uh, just excited to be in the Word of God, just excited to, uh, to be in Jesus Christ our Lord. Hopefully y'all have just been spending more and more time with Jesus, spending time in the, in the scripture, spending time in prayer and praise and thanksgiving and worship, spending time in just in meditating. I've been praying lately just that, uh, that I'd be given the wonder of it all, right? That just the wonder of Jesus, the, the wonder of the kingdom of heaven, the wonder of eternity, right? Um, you know, sometimes if we're candid, if we're frank, um, you know, sometimes Jesus isn't very exciting. You know, sometimes, you know, forgive us, Lord, it, it can just be commonplace. You know, it's uh, it can be religion to us. And so, um, you know, we do our duty and that we ought to do. We ought to walk with him. We ought to continue to grow to be like him. But, you know, we, we, we don't want to we always want to grow in, in, in the zeal and excitement and in, in walking with Jesus. And the, and the more we grow to know him, the more real all this will become to us. Does that make sense? Um, you know, sometimes it's not it's not very exciting, right, to live for Jesus or to, to go to church or to listen to a Bible study. You know, sometimes it's more fun to do our, our hobbies or to watch a Netflix show. Um, and that's just reality. And so... You know, growing to walk with Jesus is a, you know, it's a skill. It, it takes time and it takes energy. But the more we do it and the more we get to know him, the more real all this will become to us and the more exciting it will be to us. And more the more of the wonder of it all is what I've been, that's the word I've been using and, you know, when I've been praying. So, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy, your favor your goodness and your grace on our lives, Lord. We, we thank you for this book of Romans. We thank you, Lord, for this, this chapter nine, Father. We just thank you, Father, that uh, this is how you chose to give us your word, Lord. I don't understand it. Um, I don't understand why you made it uh, confusing in this chapter. But Father, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you, Father. As always, above all, we thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we worship you, we praise you, we honor you, we love you today. Holy Spirit, we ask you to lead us and guide us now as we open your word. Give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that understand in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Okay, um, we're, in the, uh, we're in the middle of Romans 9 here. Um, I don't know how far I'll get today. We're going we're gonna to start back in 13. We finished with 13 last time. And again, I don't know how far I'll go. Um, you know, I don't know if it'll be 13 to 19, maybe to 22 or 23, but we're going to dig into this conversation because when we read these words, 
uh, they're going to be difficult words to understand. The words on their face, and as I've said before, we want to do our best to to take the Bible on its face. We want to, you know, we want to read it and believe what it says without twisting it to make it fit our own agenda, right, Nathan? Um, our job is to make our beliefs and our life, Corinne, fit the Bible, not to twist the scriptures to make them fit what we want to believe or how we want to live. Um, and 95, 98, 99% of the time, the scripture is plain. It's unambiguous. But then there are sections like this um, that, that are difficult to understand. Um, in, in verse 12, um, in Romans 9, it says, Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, The older will, will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so this is the Lord speaking now. Um, and again, these are Rebecca's twins, right? Verse 10, not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And this is a quote of the Lord speaking through the prophet Malachi. So now we got to stop and say, okay, you know, Lord, this is hard. What are you talking about? You've commanded us that we have to love everyone. We even have to love our enemies. And yet here the plain words, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, um, you know, are, are, are a little bit startling. Now let's move on to verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So, wow, when you, when you just step back and think of this, okay, when you just look at these scriptures, Rap, they're, they're just, they're entirely unrelational, okay? Um, uh, our lives are about growing in relationship with each member of the triune God, growing to know our heavenly father more every day, growing to know him, growing to love him, growing to know his love, growing to know Jesus, our Lord and Savior and Master and King, growing to obey him, growing to be like him, growing to, to be his friend. Jesus said, I've called you friends. He's also our King and our God. Just growing to know the Holy Spirit, our guide, our counselor, our comforter. Um, it's, it's, it's about a relationship. But in these verses here, we have, a, you know, just a, an extremely stern aspect of the character of God, depending on how we interpret it, right? Um, you know, verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What is it speaking about here? So number one, I'm not allowed to do that, right? You and I are not allowed to say, I'm going to have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. We're called to have mercy all the time to everyone, everywhere, okay? Uh, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy, okay? Every one of us ought to consistently, right, uh, Kristen, be showing more and more and more mercy, um, mercy is when we do not get punishment 
from God that we do deserve. Okay, so again, mercy is when we when we do not get the punishment that we do deserve, and and we ought to show mercy when when we're wronged, when people are are you know do wrong to us or speak ill of us or treat us poorly or whatever they've done to hurt us or offend us. We ought to always be forgiving because we have been shown a massive, you know, unthinkable amount of mercy in the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are commanded throughout the scriptures to, to, to show complete forgiveness to anyone and everyone that's wronged us. And we do that by showing mercy, by, by not looking for everyone to get all the punishment that they deserve. When we don't show mercy, we open ourselves up to greater discipline from our heavenly father. Right, Lawrence? So, but again, so he's speaking here and to take the words on their face, it's saying that, you know, our heavenly father chose to love Jacob, chose to hate Esau and chose who he was going to save, chose who would receive eternal life and chose who wouldn't. Every single one of us is sinful. Every one of us, every human being that's ever lived, except the God-man Jesus, deserves an eternity in hell separated from the triune God because of our sinfulness. None of us deserve heaven, okay? Every single one of us needs mercy. Um, that's why it says, when he says in verse 14, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Every single one of us deserves what we've earned is an eternity separated from the triune God in hell. Okay, that's what we've all earned because of our sin. But when you just read the words, the words are saying that God the Father is going to choose who he is going to show mercy and who he's going to show compassion. And those that he does not show mercy and compassion will continue to go their own way and, and ultimately end up in hell for all eternity. This is a doctrine of election, of predestination. Now, these things are true. The doctrines of election and predestination are absolute facts. The issue or the, the, the debate, so to speak, the argument um, is over what was our Heavenly Father's reasoning for the election, right? Did he just arbitrarily choose his favorites, those he wanted to save, not based on anything we would do or anything we would believe, did he just simply, if we take this at its face, that God decided, Ephesians 1, uh, verse 4, before the world was even created, he decided which of us, which human beings he would show mercy to. Because again, all of us deserve wrath. All of us deserve an eternity separated from him because we have been selfishly sinful. The Bible makes that clear. But he, he decided, not based on anything that we would believe, not based on anything we would do, he decided who would be saved and spend an eternity in heaven, and the rest um, would go their own way to hell. Now, now, obviously, 
you know, this to the vast majority, to the 99% of Christians, this sounds ludicrous, right? We look at verses like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, Jesus, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever, you know, everlasting life. Um, Throughout the scriptures, we see we uh, we see scriptures like First Timothy two. It's God's will that that all people be saved. Second Peter three nine. It's God's will that no one perish. Right, that no one go, you know, go to hell. And that certainly makes sense to us. That's intuitive, right? Meaning it's it's reasonable to us that you know um, that God is not picking and choosing his favorites. And, you know, deciding to show them mercy and showing them compassion and just letting all those who he has not chosen go their own way. Um, that that obviously is altogether, you know, it, it, it's it's not relational. It's certainly not intuitive. It, it's a massive degree of favoritism. Uh, Romans 2.11 says, for God does not show favoritism. Um if this understanding, if a reformed or a Calvinistic understanding of the scriptures, and this is this is really where this doctrine gets all its weight, and, and you can see why, okay? Um, you know, here we have God saying, I'm God, I'm the boss, I'm the creator, you're my creatures, you're my property, and I'll choose to do with you whatever I wish. Now, uh, this is a, 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 a Calvinist view of scripture, okay? Um, there's an acronym, an acronym called TULIP that breaks down a reformed or a Calvinist view. The T stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement. The I stands for irresistible grace. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints. Simply put, from a reformed or Calvinist view, every human being is totally depraved. Now, we all agree with that. All human beings are completely and totally depraved. All of us are hopeless, helpless sinners, and without an intervention of the triune God, all of us would go to hell and none of us would believe. A Calvinist believes we're not only totally depraved in sin, but we're totally incapable of of believing the gospel. A reformed or a Calvinist thinker takes scriptures like this, where it says in verse 11, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Then you go down to 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Verse 17 says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So again, very, very hard scriptures. This, again, if you just read the words for what they say, you know, this is saying that, you know, God raised up Pharaoh 
so that he could harden his heart, so that he could he could display his power, you know, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, and so that you know uh, it would glorify him more. Okay, um, so the the debate is not whether human beings are totally depraved. The, the, the debate is, are we totally depraved without the capacity even to believe the gospel without a pre-regenerative work of the Holy Spirit? Do we need an extra measure of grace or can all humanity? Now, the fair, intuitive, right, belief of the scriptures would be that, you know, since God gave Jesus for the whole world, and we'll talk about that, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. First John 2, 2, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. So these scriptures, a reformed person doesn't take those on their face. They won't take John 3, 16 on its face. They won't take, I believe it's first John 2, 2 on its face. They won't take first Timothy 2, 4 on its face. They won't take second Peter 3, 9 on its face. And there are literally hundreds of other scriptures that they'll force into this reformed or, or Calvinistic framework um, to have it fit the framework. And, and as I said, when you read this scripture, I mean, this scripture they'll let stand on its own, but the others they'll force into the framework. Um, so again, um, a reformed person believes the tea and tulip, not only is everyone totally depraved, they're depraved beyond the capacity to, to believe. Um, the vast majority of Christians believe that, yes, all human beings are depraved in sin, but they do have in themselves a common grace given by God to all human beings that they can choose to believe. Okay, The you in, uh, in, in Reformed thinking or in Calvinism is what's called unconditional election. Out of that totally depraved place, where you are unable to do anything, even believe the gospel, even believe in Jesus, out of that place, you are elected by God based on no conditions, not based on anything you would do, not even based on anything you would believe. Election is, is a fact. The Bible is clear that everyone who is saved was elected and predestined by God before the earth was created. We talked about that in Romans 8. However, a Calvinist believes it's unconditional election, okay? The vast majority of the Protestant church would say, no, election is a reality, but it is conditional based on who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. They would say that God foreknows who, when presented with the gospel, will believe it. He knows who will reject it. God the Father knows who of their own will will, you know, Will, will humble themselves and trust in Jesus Christ and receive him as their Lord and Savior. And those people that, that he know, knows, he foreknows everything, all those that would receive Christ by their own choice, these are the ones that are elect. These are the ones that are predestined. So again, so you can see that there's truth in, in all of these points, but it's the extent of the truth. Are we totally depraved and we cannot even believe? Or are we depraved in sin, but with the capacity to believe? Is election completely unconditional? Or 
are we elect, because election is a reality, as is predestination, are we elect based on our heavenly fathers for knowledge of those who would put their faith in Christ? He makes sure they hear the gospel and he predestines them for salvation, knowing beforehand that they would choose to receive him. The L in tulip is limited atonement. In the Calvinistic or Reformed framework, limited atonement simply means that that Jesus died only for those, for the elect. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died a torturous death on behalf of only those who are elect. Okay? Um, You know, the L is also problematic because, you know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And, you know, 1 John 2 says that, you know, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, okay? So, again, we force this limited atonement. What what a Reformed scholar will do is he'll have to go back and twist that scripture to make it fit the framework because they want to take these scriptures at face value. So, you see, there's there's a difficulty in understanding it. The I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace. What does that mean? That simply means that, you know, out of your totally depraved state, uh, your heavenly father elected you, not based on anything you would believe or do. Uh, Jesus came and gave his life for you. He lived for you. He died for you and he rose from the dead. And irresistible grace means that, you know, when you are presented with the gospel, um, you cannot refuse it. Okay, the word irresistible means what it says, meaning that you that those whom God has elected, those who are going to go to heaven and be saved, the gospel will make sense to them. They will run to it. They will embrace it. They have no power to reject it. The grace of God calling you unto salvation is irresistible. And the last one, perseverance of the saints, and, and it really falls off the bone, just simply means that that you will never turn your back on Jesus. It doesn't mean you're not gonna you're not gonna have sin in your life, but it simply means you will always remain a Christian. You will, for all of your days in this life until you die, um, you will always trust in Jesus and rely on Jesus. You will persevere um, in your salvation until the day of your death, which of course, you know, in this acronym makes perfect sense because of God, you know, chose you not based on anything you could do or would do or would believe. Of course, he's going to to carry you along until the end. So um, this is what a reformed or, or a Calvinist believes. So when he reads these verses, he takes them for just what they said. When God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. They have no problem with that. Okay, obviously. The vast majority of us who read this, you know, we would look at it and say, you know, this perhaps we're not understanding something here. What does he mean when he says, I'll have mercy? Yes, obviously he can. God, the father, God, the son, Jesus and God, the Holy Spirit, our triune God certainly can do anything they want. Okay, Um, if the if the reformed view or the Calvinist view that I just explained to you is true, certainly Uh, Our God has the power to do that. The question is not whether he can do it. Of course, he can do anything. Okay, he's all powerful. He's omnipotent. There's he can do anything. There's nothing he can't do. 
He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He means he knows everything. He can't learn anything, right, May? When you know everything, you can't learn anything. Um, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times, in all history, outside of time, he created time. So, of course, he can do these things. The question is, does he do it this way? Okay. As we move on and we get later in this chapter, in the next chapter, we're going to see that, you know, that, that, that perhaps that what, you know, what this is saying, and again, there's massive debate on this chapter, is that it's going to give us the reasoning as to why, okay, and, and you know what it means when the Lord says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, um, that it's not just, you know, so straightforward, dogmatic, and I'm the boss, and I'm choosing who's going to be saved, and everyone else is going to spend an eternity in hell. Certainly he could do that, but as we go on, we're going to see that, you know, that his reasoning, it's going to say, was because people you know, refused to believe and, you know, you know, still, you know, held tight to this works-based righteousness. You know, they wouldn't trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. They were, they were demanding to be made right with God by their own good life instead of being willing to humble themselves um, and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and put their full trust and confidence in Jesus alone, right? Um, all right. So, again, when we read them, now again, it's, it's, I've studied this for twenty. I've studied this for twenty-five years, um, and and again, we could we could we could talk about this subject um, for for, the, for 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 five or six hours. Okay, I, I have spent an immense amount of time in studying this. It is interesting to me, and I do believe there's a possibility. I do believe there's a possibility that Reformed theology uh, and Calvinism is correct. I hope it's not. Okay, it uh, again, it's it's completely counterintuitive. Um, you know, uh, obviously, I'd be happy that I'm one of the elect that 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 I'm one of those that that my heavenly Father has chosen. But but it would very much grieve me um, if this is true. It does grieve me that you know all those that that he didn't choose. I do want to believe that every single human being, when presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ you know, does have the opportunity to choose him, does have the opportunity and the capacity by the grace of God in themselves, already given to them, given to all people to either choose Jesus or reject him. And in, in this way, everyone has an opportunity to be saved. In this way, um, you know, the people that have spent eternity in hell, you know, they deliberately rejected Jesus and they really did have the opportunity to receive him. In a, in, a, in a Calvinistic or Reformed view, they rejected Jesus. That's all they could do. And they had no possibility to receive him because God did not do a pre-regenerative work. He did not give them the extra measure of grace that drew them to the gospel of Jesus Christ and saved them. So... Um, Again, much could be said about this. When you look at 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. I mean, that's a hard word, right? So again, if you just read that, it does not therefore depend on man's desire. So it doesn't, it doesn't depend on whether you desire Jesus or not, um, or effort, right? Your desire to come to Jesus, 
but on God's mercy. Now, of course, that's true. Okay, none of us could be saved without God's mercy. There's no doubt about that. But when he says it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy, perhaps that simply means that, you know, none of our desire or effort would would do us any good if not for the mercy of God. And that's certainly true. Um, And so perhaps that with God's mercy and again, by common grace, you know, enabling, you know, all people, you know, you know, throughout the world by his common grace, you know, giving them the grace that they can come to Jesus and give their life to Jesus. If he has shown that common grace to everyone, then this scripture makes sense. Okay. You know, this could be read that again, God has shown mercy to the world. He's loved the world. He gave Jesus and made provision for Jesus. Um, made provision for the entire world by giving and sending Jesus, Jesus willingly becoming a human man, living a perfect life on our behalf, dying a torturous death and being raised from the dead. That provision is for everyone in the world, for whosoever will. Uh, That mercy has been given. Um, And so when it says, you know, he'll show mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, we could say that the mercy is shown to everyone, right? Not just particularly to the favorites, Okay, and then again in verse 17, he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, that my name and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay, Uh, that's Exodus 9, 16, 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And again, we're going to get into this next time, because again, again, when you just read this. Obviously, it doesn't seem fair, right? It doesn't seem right, okay? Just to take these words, Paul, Romans 9, 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, in the story with Pharaoh, it says several times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, okay? So again, a possible explanation for this is that God foreknowing who will harden their hearts, their own hearts, does them no wrong by, by say, speeding the process along, knowing that they're only going to harden their own heart anyway, okay? Um, but, you know, this idea here that God is hardening someone's heart that, that otherwise wouldn't have hardened their heart is obviously very, very difficult for us to accept, right? So just taking this, this scripture on its face, I mean, how can you do it? Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, there is a view, again, a provisionist view is that this whole chapter, as well as 10 and 11, is Paul speaking about the nation of Israel and doesn't have application to us as believers. But again, that is, I think that's, again, that's not a view that where we're just taking the scripture on its face. So we have to continue to wrestle with this, right? So, all right, well, we're going to pick it up next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy, your favor, your goodness, and your grace on our lives, Lord. We thank you for these tremendous scriptures, Father. We thank you for the truth. Holy Spirit, we ask you just to to open our minds and open our hearts and help us to understand this great mystery of the basis of your election and of your predestination. (sighs) Father, we love you. We bless you and we thank you. Jesus, we worship you. Holy Spirit, seal this message to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.